So, Gabe. Yeah. I have been planning summer explosion this year for the kids. Okay. And I have a brilliant idea. What's that? Okay. So, you know how we do fireworks for the 4th of July? Yeah. Okay. So, here's my idea. I want to have fireworks in the worship center for the kids. So, when it's summer explosion, the worship center explodes. What do you think about it? Uh, we might have to call the fire department. Okay, but you think we can do it? Maybe. Oh. oh. Holy cow! That was weird! Anyway, you think we can do it? You know, I really don't think Chris would appreciate it. Okay. talking about summer explosion. Yeah. So, since you think that fireworks aren't gonna be a good idea in the worship center, I have an idea that's perfect for summer explosion. What's that? Confetti cannons. Uh, let's get out of here. Yeah. Cool. That video is funny. I don't care what y'all think. That thing, that is funny right there. Um, welcome to all of you. We're so glad that you're part of our worship service today. My name is Pastor Brad. I'm the worship arts pastor here at New Life. And I want to just say a special welcome to those of you who are first time guests with us here today. Thank you so much for uh, being part of our service today, for taking time out of your busy schedule and, and uh, decide, hey, I'm going to go to church today. We just want you to know that we, we love you, we pray for you, and we're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. Uh, if you're a regular uh, family member today, we're so glad that you're here with us. Thank you for coming back. Welcome back. And uh, to those of you who are joining us online, thank you so much for taking time and whatever you're doing today, whether you're traveling or uh, if you're on vacation or wherever you're at, thank you for being a part of our service today. We love you guys and, and we pray for you as well that God would just speak uh, through that little lens right there all the way to wherever you are. So we are so glad um, to have all of you here today. And, uh, and man, that, that video as I watch that just kind of brings up some, reminds me of conversations I've had in my life. Have you ever had an elephant sneak up in you, uh, on you in a conversation? Ever had that happen? Like it's really awkward, right? And it can be really awkward. And, and I think that the primary reason for that is that as churched people, as people who believe in Jesus, followers of Jesus, a lot of times uh, when an elephant sneaks into the conversation, it's awkward only because we don't know what to say. And you see, that's a problem because Jesus told us and, and he gathered his disciples and he said, listen, you guys and then everybody else forward, you're going to be salt and light in a world that is dark and tasteless. And so what Jesus was saying is that in the light, the light illuminates the truth and Jesus and his teaching is the truth and the salt is how we communicate that truth to the world. In fact, the apostle Paul said it a little bit differently. He said, we speak the truth in love. 
And so if we think about it this way, the light illuminates the truth. And when we communicate it, we need to communicate it in such a way that it enhances the conversation and it enhances the flavor, right? I mean, salt, when you put it on something, what's it do? Make something that's awful better, right? I mean, that's what salt does. It, it makes things taste good. And so when we communicate the truth of God, we have to do it in a salty way so that it enhances that conversation, enhances the re- relationship. And what it does, really, everybody, is it, it just points to the fact that God's truth, when it is lived out, actually makes our lives better. And so we have to, uh, as followers of Jesus, learn how to speak the truth in love and so that when an elephant sneaks into the room we can actually address it with some biblical principles. And you see, that's why we want to do this series, so that when we have this happen, that we can say, you know what, actually, uh, let's talk about that for a minute. And then we can kind of lean into that. You see, it's time for us to stop participating in in passive complicity and ignoring elephants and allowing the elephants to get bigger and bigger. And so in this series, we're defining elephants in this way. An elephant is something that is obvious in our culture, but which is sensitive uh, or maybe divisive uh, or maybe people just ignore it and believe that it doesn't exist. And, and the church is really known for this. Uh, a lot of churches don't want to talk about elephants because they're afraid that they're going to upset somebody or they're afraid that they're going to make the community think poorly of them and they're just maybe going to tick some, some group of people off. And, and so, so the church in general in America just has stepped back in fear. And that's not what Jesus said for us to do. He said, hey, listen, church, I need you to do something. I need you to be salt and light. And so you need to go out and, and you need to communicate these things. In fact, Jesus did that all the time in his ministry. Jesus spoke against the elephants in his, uh, against his, the religious leaders. And guess what they did to him? They killed him. In fact, that's the first point on your outline. And I want to encourage you today, if you have an outline, and actually all throughout this series, it's in your connection, take it out. And listen, if you're not a note taker, I understand. I'm not really a note taker either. But in these particular messages, I think this will be so helpful because when that elephant pops up, if you can't remember it at that moment, you can go like, hey, just a minute. Uh, I have this in my phone. You can take a picture of it, put it on Evernote or whatever notes app you have or just on your pictures in your phone so you always have it. Uh, But I want to encourage you to take some time and do that. But the first blank is this. The religious leaders in Jesus' day crucified him because he dealt with the elephants they would not address. You see, the, the religious leaders, they had come up with all of these laws to protect them from the, the, so that they wouldn't fall into the laws of God. And so what they were doing is they were distorting the laws of God and making excuses actually for themselves not to follow the laws of God. And Jesus called them out on that all the time. And he actually said, you all are hypocrites. Right? And that's, a, that's not a good thing because a hypocrite is somebody who says something and does something else. And so the religious leaders didn't like that because Jesus addressed all of these elephants in his uh, three-year public ministry. So the bottom line in all of this is this, and here's the second blank. Jesus' love requires far more of us than we could ever give without the Holy Spirit leading and empowering us. So here's the thing I want us to understand. As we look at these elephants and as we address these elephants in our culture, we cannot do this by ourselves. If we try to do this by ourselves, it's, it's going to end in disaster. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We need his leading as we talk about these important cultural issues that, honestly, we can't ignore them any longer. We need to address them in, with God's principles, and we need to address them in God's love. So we're looking at six through this series. The, la- the first one that we looked at last week was abortion. And Pastor Chris did such an excellent job 
of speaking about that very sensitive and tough subject in truth and love. And I want to encourage you, if you didn't get to watch that message, hop online to newlifexn.org or get out your New Life app on your phone or your device and watch that message because he did such a, a powerful job showing us God's truth as it relates to abortion. Today, we're going to be looking at racism. Next week, we're going to be looking at suicide. The following week, we're going to be looking at sexuality uh, and, and God's principles for that. And then the fifth week and last night, I got to tell you this. So we practice our messages so that we don't look like buffoons when we're on the stage. Um, and so when we do that, every time I would go through these, I always said windows and orphans, right? And then I automatically thought about Lego Batman because I always picture the orphanage in Lego Batman has little, little people looking out through the windows. And so I thought it was appropriate to have windows and orphans. Um, but it's actually not windows and orphans. It's widows and orphans. So we'll be talking about that on the fifth week. And then the final week, we're going to be uh, talking about... Uh, poverty and, and God's principles as we deal with um, the poor in our communities and in our culture. So you probably won't agree with everything in these messages. And in fact, we don't, we're, we don't even know 100% if we can say for sure what Jesus' intentions always were. But the thing that we want you to understand is that we've sought to gain the best understanding of his intentions or God's clear instruction through his word and the biblical writers to present them to all of us, so that we can live out in truth and in love. And I promise, as Pastor Chris did last week, a prayerful, humble, and serious examination of these elephants as it compares to the Word of God. And, and what we want to do is try to overlay these things so that we can get right understanding when it comes to the elephants, so that we can address them, so that we can talk about them and not ignore them anymore. So, today we enter into a wonderful world of gray. We're venturing into an area some say don't exist, and others know it's true experience. Its color matches the pigment and the size of the elephant it represents. But here's the reality. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what Pastor Chris says. It doesn't matter what Pastor Mark says next week. What matters is what God has said already. And you see, we have to, as, as followers of Jesus, we need to grapple with God's truth and let it kind of uh, begin to unwind our preconceived ideas so that we can have his understanding as it relates to these particular elephants. So today we address the elephant of racism. So I'd like you to participate in an activity with me. If you would right now, please close your eyes and I want you to just right now, I want you to picture heaven. And listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus in here right now, I just want you to do this. If you think it's an imaginary place, that's fine, but just do this because the outcome will be the same for, for both groups today. So, so close your eyes and picture heaven. You're in heaven and I want you to just, just kind of put your head up into the air and just, just feel the warmth from the light that's present there. And then everybody just, just take a deep breath right now. Just just taste the purity of the air and then, then reach down and just touch the earth and run the earth and its unique feeling through your fingers. Now I want you to look at the environment. Just notice how beautiful it is. It's absolutely stunning. Everything is perfect. It's peaceful here. In fact, joy and peace are tangible in this place. Now look around at all the people. Look at their, look at how beautiful they are. Look at the, look at their height and look at their weight. Look at their eyes and the way that they're shaped. Look at, 
Look at everything about them. Just, just bask in the beauty of this place. Okay, now open your eyes and look at me just for one second. Everybody looking at me for one, one time in this service, okay? What color was their skin? Most likely, if you're white, they were probably white. If you're black, they were probably black. If you're of Asian descent, they were probably a, a similar skin tone with some unique facial features. But you see, the Apostle John actually gives us an incredible picture of heaven. Here's what he said heaven looks like because he got to see it in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Here's what he said. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. So you see, heaven is filled with diversity. Every tribe, every nation, every color, every language, everybody is represented in heaven. And John, he kind of goes up there and he just kind of takes a snapshot and he goes, this is what it looks like. It's just different colors everywhere. It's beautiful. And what are they doing? They are just before the Lamb, just worshiping God. And the Apostle John takes this snapshot of incredible diversity. And you see, most Christians know this, or they realize this, and that heaven is filled with all kinds of people. Now, let me ask you one final question. Are you surprised that you thought that everybody looked like you? Well, you shouldn't be. Because we've all been socialized into homogenous tribes. We in America have been socialized into homogenous tribes. The, 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 in, in America, tribes tend to rally around certain ideas. So, and some ideas take off in certain races, and other ideas take off in other races. And we can determine then through simple observation. I mean, honestly, you just need to turn on the news, and you can see the tribalism that happens in America. So, if you took a snapshot of heaven, and you would see this incredible diversity, and everybody's just unified, and it's beautiful. And then you took a Polaroid, right? You know, you know what a Polaroid is? It's not a dance move, by the way. It's actually a thing, you, right? It comes out and you shake it forever. And then, boom, picture, right? If you were to do that of our culture, of our nation right now, what would you see? Incredible division, pain, and hurt. See, racism is real. And I know when some of us hear something like that, there's actually a psychological process that happens. You see, some of us in here right now, when we hear that racism is real, we automatically go into this thing called refutation mode. And refutation mode is a comprehensive disagreement with an argument or an idea. And it's very dangerous because what happens is when we get into this mode, whenever we hear something with which we disagree, and, and perhaps we disagree strongly, we begin to stop listening and completely disengage. And then we begin to formulate ideas in our minds and we begin to wait and kind of get real anxious and be like, man, I just want to tell you what my opinion is right now. Right? Yep. Anybody ever do this before? Like, you know... When you're golfing or something, you know, um, if you don't golf or whatever it is that you love to do. Yeah, like we all do this. We, we hear something that we don't like and we just start formulating and that's called refutation mode. And it's very dangerous because then we can't um, receive or perceive an argument of truth. But there's one even worse than refutation mode and that's indifference mode. And that is just simply saying, I don't care. And I, I just want you to know today, God's not okay with that. We have to care. 
because this is a serious issue for him. So when we enter into into refutation mode, we get extremely emotional. In fact, Robin D'Angelo in her book, White Fragility, makes a statement that I think is incredibly important for us to understand this today. So here's what she said. White people in America are socialized into acquiring a set of racist assumptions and behavior patterns which are wrapped up with some of the fundamental ideologies of American society. When their assumptions and patterns are challenged, they react in highly emotional ways which prevent their racism from being addressed, thereby reinforcing it. So her solution is embrace the discomfort. Embrace the discomfort when it, when it comes to this idea of racism. We need to embrace it as, as you know, it's just not, it's not a comfortable thing to talk about or even admit but we must deal with the issue. We have to dig into it. So I want to invite you today and for the rest of the series, just would you just, for, for the next 20 minutes, would you just lean in? Would you just lay aside your own ideas? Because I'm doing the same thing, and I just want you to know we're looking at God's word today, and that's where we're going to end up ultimately, to apply God's principles to this particular elephant and see how we can be transformed by his truth. So I have a goal today, and part of my goal is three parts. So here it is. Number one, we need to understand the problem of racism. Number two, we need to find God's solution. And then number three, this is important, because a lot of us, we know the solution, and we don't even care. Like, you know, anyway. Put the solution into action. Understand the problem, find God's solution, and put the solution into action. So racism is real. Whether we like to acknowledge it or not, racism in our culture is a real problem. And it'll do us well to understand um, some of these terms because they have different meanings from different people. But I want to show you what the real definition is of these things. So racism, and this is on your outline, uh, racism is a formal system of racial prejudice. Racism is a formal system of racial prejudice. And that that begs the question, then, what is racial prejudice? Racial prejudice means to prejudge someone based on their race. In other words, racism is standardized discrimination against a group of people based on ethnicity or skin color. And you see, it all comes down to race. And we have to understand that race is more complex than skin color, but not less. Race is more complex than skin color, but not less. And in our culture, racial issues have extremely deep roots. So let's look at this problem. The issues of racism actually harken back to the days of European colonization. In fact, in some of the letters from Christopher Columbus, he came over and, and he saw the indigenous peoples that were here. And he's, he actually looked at them and he said, you know, they don't even compare to the beauty of Europeans. And I think he was, he was probably predisposed there in an idea. But anyway, so he looked around and he said, you know what, these people, they're going to work. They're going to be excellent for gaining us profits. And so um, the, the people who came over from Europe, they were mostly wealthy, mostly white, and mostly Christian. And they came over and they determined who worked as unpaid labor. And over time, race became the determining factor for enslavement. 
In fact, in North America, race became a social construct created for economic purposes. And Jamar Tisby, in his book, The Color of Compromise, he makes a very important observation. And here's what he said. There is no biological basis for the superiority or inferiority of any human being based on the amount of melanin in his or her skin. The development of the idea of race required the intentional actions of people in the social, political, and religious spheres to decide that skin color determined who would be enslaved and who would be free. Over time, Europeans, including Christians, wrote the laws and formed the habits that concentrated power in the hands of those they considered white while withholding power from those they considered black. And thus, the standardization and institutionalization of racial prejudice began. Now, fast forward a couple hundred years, and judge, uh, there was a, a judge on the Supreme Court, the highest court of the land. His name was Roger Taney, and he wrote the majority opinion in a very important case that was occurring in 1857. It was right before the Civil War, and, and in this case, in this opinion, we can clearly see how far racism had saturated the American culture. I mean, honestly, when I read this, I was, I was, I was offended. <laughs> I'll just be honest with you. Um, and when you hear it, honestly, I hope you get offended at what you're about to hear. Because this is honestly disgusting. This is a judge on the highest court of the land in America. You see, and he's talking and uh, referring to this court case called Dred Scott. And what it was was there was a, a man who purchased his freedom, and he wanted to purchase the freedom of his wife and his children so they could come and be with him. And it went all the way up to the higher courts. And here's what Judge Taney said. He stated that black people were of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race. He went on to discuss how the Constitution didn't have black people in mind when it outlined the rights and duties of its citizens. Instead, he said, black people had no rights with which the white man was bound to respect. I read that and I thought, oh my goodness. That is, that is crazy. You see, Judge Taney in the Supreme Court handed down a decision that clearly discriminated against a particular race of people and thus standardizing actions that would be taken against that particular race. So after the Civil War ended and after the North declared victory in the Civil War, racism continued to leave its ugly mark on American culture with these things called the Jim Crow laws. Tisby outlines in his book, as he quotes a, an attorney named Brian Stevenson, he said this, the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. And what he means by this is, yes, we know that, that the North, they won the war. We, I mean, it's history. We, we know that. But the South, they lost, I mean, they lost their complete economic system. They relied on unpaid labor, and so now they had to actually pay people, which means that their money was going to go down, right? And so their, their systems were completely broken. And so what began to happen is they began to reconstruct. And as they were reconstructing, they began to tell a story of what it was like before the Civil War. And do you remember what it was like? And so what they did is they influenced their local lawmakers and their state lawmakers to institute these Jim Crow laws, which segregated blacks and whites, as a way of romanticizing what it was like before they had to face equality with black people. 
and Jim Crow laws as they were standardized in local and state municipalities and, and, and laws caused incredible hate to rise up against black people. And it was devastating. The result of the Jim Crow laws led to social structure of this hate against people of color. But this is where the rubber meets the road for us because Jim Crow laws allowed racist attitudes to become embedded in our social, political, and even our religious systems. But it laid the foundation for the civil rights movement that would happen about 70 years later. And the civil rights movement was a huge step in the right direction. But here we are 60-some years after that decade of civil rights movement and push, and we still have some serious issues to deal with. We still have a lot to do if we're going to completely rid our political systems, our religious systems, our social systems, our economic systems of discrimination against ethnicities and against races. We have a lot to do. There is so much to be done. And as a white man, honestly, I can't even begin to imagine the discrimination and the hate and the prejudice that African Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanics have had to endure in the name of progress and success. It's not right. And I'm sorry that the church has not stand up, stood up strongly against institutionalized and standardized hate and discrimination. And so now the question is, what can we do? What can we do? See, racism isn't a new problem. So a lot of us, we think that, that racist attitudes and all these things just existed, you know, 60 years ago. <laughs> Because we're most familiar with the civil rights movement. And then we, we go, oh yeah, well, we know about slaves. And, and, and oh yeah, I guess, I guess when Europeans came over. So okay, 400 years or so, we've experienced racism. No, 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 no. It's gone back for thousands of years. In fact, Jesus addressed it in the story that we're going to look at today as we learn what can we do. So let me set up the stage for this. So a religious leader, <laughs> the ones that Jesus oftentimes called hypocrites, came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I hear you talking about this thing called eternal life. How can I inherit that? How can I receive that in my life? Because, man, I, I want that. That sounds really, really good. And so he asked Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus turns to him and he, he asks him a question. He said, he said, what does the law of Moses say and how do you read it? And this is where we're going to pick up in verse 27. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and all your, oh, I'm sorry, all your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, right, do this and you will live. Then the man asked Jesus a very important question. He said, he wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, think about this. Have you ever tried to rationalize something that you did that you knew you shouldn't have done? Right? That's exactly what this guy's doing right here. He's, he's trying to think about all of these things, and he's, he, he wants to love, and he wants to love God with everything that's inside of him. He wants to love his neighbor, but he knows he doesn't do it very well, and so he wants to rationalize what he's doing. And so he says, Jesus, hey, who is my neighbor? Expecting Jesus to say, well, all of your Jewish brothers, my friend. But Jesus then goes into a story, and this is an important story. 
And here's what Jesus said. Jesus replied with a story. He said, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So we need to understand the significance of this story. Jesus is telling about a man, a Jewish man, who would have been a brother, in essence, to uh, the, the, the religious teacher because he was a Jew. And, and this Jewish man was walking from Jer- Jericho back to Jerusalem, and, and on his way, he was beat up by robbers and bandits. And, and that in itself would have been, been enough to make the religious leader go, oh, that's, that means he would have been unclean because he would have had blood and all that kind of stuff. And, and then he gets thrown on the side of the road, and, and then one of his Jewish brothers comes down, and he, he passes by, and, and he notices the man, but he's just like, ugh, and I don't want to mess with that. And so he keeps going, and then another Jewish man, a Levitical priest comes in, and he looks at the man, and, and, and he looks, like even walks over to him and goes, poor guy, and then walks on the road. And then a Samaritan comes, and the key word that Jesus used is despised. You see, the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had standardized and formalized systems to to discriminate and hate the Samaritans. In fact, they hated them so much that they would walk around their country so that they wouldn't even have to see a Samaritan. That's how much they hated them. That's racism, y'all. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were half-breeds. They didn't want to engage at all. So when we look at this story, we need to understand the extreme significance of what Jesus is saying. First of all, the person that was hurt was a Jew and not a Samaritan. Strike one. Second of all, uh, the, the Jewish man and the priest and the Levite abandoned their brother. Strike two. Then to have a Samaritan be the one to save the day. Strike three. This would have been absolutely repulsive to the religious teacher. Then Jesus dug in and he asked him, so which of these three men would you say was a neighbor to to the person who was attacked by bandits? And what was the man's response? The one who showed him mercy. So then the the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Is everyone. Everyone is our neighbor. No matter their height or their weight, no matter the color of their skin, the shape of their eyes, the way they talk, no matter any of that stuff, everyone is our neighbor. That's what Jesus is teaching here in this experience. So in this series, we've been asking the question, what does God's love require concerning a particular elephant? 
So when it comes to racism, what does God's love require? And this is what I want all of us today to walk out of here with. I want you to take this, put it in your pocket, and keep it with you so that you can pull it out of the pocket of your heart at any point. Jesus' love and God's love requires we treat everyone with honor and dignity as people made in God's image. That's what God's love requires. God's love requires we treat everyone with honor and dignity as people made in God's image. The thing we have to understand is that Jesus was pointing out that the Samaritan helping the Jew, which honestly would have made the Samaritan unclean as well because he, would have, he was bandaging those wounds and, you know, they didn't have rubber gloves back then, right? And so he's kind of using olive oil and he's like, all right, got a little blood on me there and that's... Uh, it's okay, you know, and, and then he puts him on his donkey and carries him all the way back and, and restores him completely. Jesus is pointing out that both of the men have the image of God inside of them and both are to be valued. So let's go back to the question, what can we do then? I want to share with you three simple steps that we can take that we will, will allow us to address the issue of racism no matter where we are so that we can speak against this elephant. And here's the first step that we can take. First, engage others with compassion and empathy. Engage others with compassion and empathy. If we're going to treat everyone with honor and dignity, then we must engage them with compassion and empathy. Look at what the Samaritan did. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. He saw him laying there. Everybody else had been walking by and he, he saw him and he said, man, I don't know about this guy. He's having a bad day. And so he steps in and he engages the man with compassion and with empathy. You see, a lot of us don't know a lot about very many people. In fact, many of us don't know much about anybody, to be honest with you. So we can't even begin to pretend to understand that we can know their pain. unless, of course, we've been through it. So we need to engage everyone with compassion and empathy, with understanding that we can engage them with fresh eyes and see their hurt and help them with compassion. That's the first thing. Engage people with compassion and empathy. Number two, embrace the uncomfortable. Embrace the uncomfortable. Look what the Samaritan did. Going over to him. Now, this is uncomfortable. The Samaritan who was hated by this man who's laying on the ground who on any other day would hate the Samaritan. He's going over to him. The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. He said, I heard a long time ago Andy Stanley said, and I, sometimes Andy Stanley says things. He's a pastor at North Point Community Church down in Atlanta, Georgia, and he says things so well. And sometimes when he says things, I'm like, man, that... That's hard to do. But he said, walk toward the mess. You see, some, a lot of us, it won't be somebody laying on the side of a road, but it will be a relationship where somebody's been deeply hurt. And we need to walk towards that mess. And we need to get our hands dirty. We need to embrace the uncomfortable. That's the second thing. The third thing is finally enter into the solution. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And he took care of him until he was completely 
restored. You see, love requires that we must be part of the solution to treat everyone with honor and dignity. Therefore, we must ask, where can I enter into the solution? All of us have different connections. All of us are in different locations where we work and in our family situations. And so we need to look around. And when it comes to this elephant of racism, where is it that we can get involved and we can bring God's principles because now we have them. We know that everybody's our neighbor and we can treat them. We need to engage everybody with compassion and empathy. We need to embrace the uncomfortable and then we need to enter and be part of this solution, everybody. So that we can see transformation and God move through us and change people and bring about redemption and healing. You see, racism in real Racism is real, and you and I and the power of the Holy Spirit are the solution, and God's love requires that we treat everyone with honor and dignity as people made in the image of God. Now, please understand me. This issue of racism is a serious issue for me. It's kind of funny, actually. Pastor Chris came and said to me, I don't remember which one of you three said this to him, said, why aren't you preaching this message? You have three Asians living in your house. Um, and, uh, and that was a great point, honestly. Um, but he's away on, on vacation right now. But, but he also knew this about me. So my parents, um, I was born in Oil City uh, about 35 years ago. I had my birthday this week, y'all. Made it to 35. Whoop, whoop. So, uh, whoo, I did it. 35 more. I don't know if I can do it, but we'll see. All right. So, so, um, so 35 years ago, I was born in Oil City. Uh, my parents, Richard and Jane French, they're lovely parents, and I was the, the king of the household for the first eight years of my life. I was both the uh, younger son and the, or the prodigal son and the older son, uh, all smashed into one in my parents' house for eight years. And then uh, my parents decided they wanted to adopt, and so they adopted a little boy, and his name was Michael, and Michael uh, was four years younger than me, and Michael's completely white. In fact, he's whiter than me, um, and uh, he's very, very pale, <laughs> and my parents, two, two white people, had me. I'm a white person. Had my brother, Michael, who's a white person. There were four of us. And then my parents continued to adopt children because they believed that was God's calling on their life. And so after that, um, four white people, they adopted six other children who were black or biracial. And this week, I called my sister and I said, hey, Sarah, have you ever experienced racism in Western Pennsylvania, your experience growing up? She said, oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. She said she had been discriminated against at a job because of her color. She had been discriminated against at her school and made fun of at school because of her color and the way that her hair was. And, and, and she had been you know, discriminated against in some other areas. But she said, honestly, I can handle those things. What it is that really gets me, though, is the passive judgment that happens everywhere I go. When I walk into a store or a restaurant, I always get that stink eye like, what are you doing here? And my heart broke, you know? It's, it's just so painful. And so, you know, I, I get it. I understand that. I mean, I lived in that environment. Whenever we would go somewhere, first of all, there were 10 of us, okay? That's a lot of people in a family, okay? Four of us were white, the rest were black or biracial, and, and my two younger brothers were super black, like ultra black. So, so, like, it was weird, you know? I mean, people would look around and be like, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense, you know? And, and I understand that. But what they don't get is that we were a family. 
that we were bound by law to love and care for one another and to invest in one another. And, and all of my brothers and sisters have all the rights and, and prop, to properties and things that I, same as I do. I mean, I stood before the judge and, and I understood that. But I understand that sometimes it's a little bit strange. But I could feel those stares as well. But perhaps what's even more important to me is my wife and I adopted a little boy, and he's black. And I don't want my son to have to experience the discrimination in opportunity. I don't want him to have to hear things that my brother heard even recently. You're, you're dirty. I want him to hear that. I want him to know that, that I love him, that his church loves him, that his heavenly father loves him eternally and that he is valued above all things. I want him to have every opportunity that I've had in a judgment-free environment. He is my firstborn. He is my son. And I want that for him. Because he deserves it. He was made as much in the image of God as I was. Racism is real. And everyone deserves honor and dignity because we're all created in the same image of God. So as we close today, I want us to look at a picture of Jesus. Now, many of you probably, you're, you're familiar with this picture. You've probably even seen it. It's called the head of Christ. And we've already pictured heaven, so now let's picture Jesus. Many of you probably know this picture. You've seen it before. It's painted by a guy named Warner Salmon. Warner Salmon painted this picture in 1940. He was commissioned to paint it. And, and he painted it. And, and something that's really important about Warner Salmon is Warner Salmon was a commercial advertiser. Which explains why Jesus is a white man with brown flowing hair and blue eyes. It looks brown in this image, but they're blue. And I wanted us to understand that this is something so important. Jesus did not look like this. Warner Salmon was absolutely wrong. I don't know if he knew it or not. I mean, it's an amazing picture. It really is. It's an amazing painting. But it's absolutely wrong. Jesus was a dark-skinned Palestinian. He was not a white American with hipster hair. <laughs> but do you see how culture pushes ideas onto us and how even our socialization Warner Salmon was, was, his parents were Swedish and Finnish, and he immigrated to America and lived in Chicago and in a white neighborhood. So he had this in his mind. This is what, how he saw Jesus. And I'm not here today to say, hey, listen, you, you need to, if you have this picture in your wallet or something like that, you need to throw it away. I'll leave that up to you. But the reality is, that's not who Jesus was. Jesus was. Jesus, our Savior, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, was a dark-skinned Palestinian. So will you partner with me in disrupting this kind of thinking and embracing a biblical solution? I pray you will engage with me and with others in compassion and empathy, embracing the uncomfortable and entering into a solution just like Jesus, our Savior and Lord, and a dark-skinned Palestinian told us to do. Will you do that with me? Will you partner with me? Please, 
for the sake of the kingdom of God. I don't want to talk about this elephant again in 20 years. I want it to be gone because of what God does today in this room. So if you'll do that, would you take this next step with me? I will embrace and engage God's love for all people this week. I will embrace and engage God's love for all people this week. Imagine what it will be like if we all lived like Jesus and tried to restore all relationships instead of blowing them up. We might actually get a little snapshot of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you so much that you are a God of all nations, of all colors, of all languages, of all tribes, of all the peoples on the earth. You are the God above all, and you deserve all the glory and the honor. And when John wrote about heaven, he was pointing to all of these people, bringing you that glory and honor. And Father, if we can't even get past these human issues, how can we ever expect to enter into that? So today, Heavenly Father, I pray you would stir up our hearts to to engage people with compassion and empathy and to embrace the uncomfortable and enter with you in us into a solution against racism that we might find love and joy as a direct result, that we would be transformed from the inside out so that the children of this next generation might experience incredible opportunity, no matter who they are or where they come from, whether they're white, black, whether they're Native American, Asian, or even Muslim, Father, that we would have all the opportunities to tell them about you and how much you love them and help us do that by engaging them well in relationship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.